Jeremiah 18, verse 1, the, Lord, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Now, if we're ever going to hear, it's going to be the Lord causing us to hear. Yes. It's going to take a divine intervention and a divine revelation. Then I went down to the potter's house. And the Lord's word's always effectual, isn't it? I went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. For the most part, I suppose everyone here this morning has heard some of the ridiculous religious statements that have been made concerning salvation. Being raised in religion, and I use that term on purpose, religion, not under the truth, but under false religion, I've heard these ridiculous statements all of my life. And sadly, it was statements like these that caused me to stop going to church altogether for many years. God Almighty was presented to me as being anything but Almighty. If God was God and I was dead in trespasses and sin, these statements made both of those things untrue. I heard the question asked time and time again, won't you make Jesus Lord? I thought Jesus was Lord. How could I make Him so? I heard preachers ask again and again, won't you let Jesus have His way in your life? Well, I was under the impression, and now see that I'm right, that Jesus has always had His way in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. I believe that Jesus Christ is the way. And no sinner comes to God but by Him. Again and again I heard sinners ask, won't you give Jesus your heart? Well, why would God want our hearts? Every imagination of our heart is only evil continually. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That word wicked there means frail and incurably sick. How about this statement? Why don't you let go and let God? And if I can let God, then I am God. Did you hear me? You better get ready to deal with me if I can let God do something. But I can't let God. The Bible says that God's in the heavens and He's done whatsoever He hath pleased. Someone recently 
left a religious track, a religious brochure at the barbershop where I go that was titled, Five Bible Verses to Help You Let Go and Let God. And I mention this only because I was flabbergasted to discover that all five of the verses that they had in that brochure proved just the opposite. I want to quickly give them to you. First one was Proverbs 16.9, which says, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The second one was Isaiah 26.3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Who does? Who keeps us in perfect peace? The Lord does. Whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The next one, was really surprising. Psalm 115.3, But our God's in the heavens, and He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Is that me letting go and letting God? Romans 8.28, You know it before I read it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. God works all things after the counsel of His own will. And God works all those things for the good of His people. And then the fifth one was Ephesians 3.20. Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly above all that we could think or ask according to the power that worketh in us. The, the five Bible verses that they say will help us to let go and let God are the five, five of the most glorious verses that prove just the opposite. <clears throat> God does what He wills, how He wills, to whom He wills. And none can stay His hand and none can question Him by saying, God, what are you doing? So it was very obvious to me that whosoever it was <clears throat> excuse me, that reconciled, reconciled these verses with letting go and letting God, God had let them go and let them believe a lie. All five of those verses proved that we don't let go of anything, especially our sin. And we can't, and can't let God who directs our steps and keeps us in perfect peace and does whatsoever He pleases in heaven and earth we can't let God who works all things after the counsel uh, and all things together for His people's good and does exceeding abundantly above all that we can think or ask, we, we can't let Him do anything. That's right. Whoever wrote that track should have added this sixth verse, Psalm 135.6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He. And he did it in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. Let go and let God. No, we've let ourselves go and by nature our fallen will will not let or allow Christ to rule over us. So with that said, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And let me say immediately, no, this is not another sermon on election, predestination, and divine providence. This is the preaching of the Gospel. The preaching of Christ, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And God's election and God's predestination and God's divine providence is proof that God saved His people apart from their way, their work, and their will. 
The gospel is a message of grace. The gospel is a message of mercy. The gospel is a message about Jesus Christ in whom grace and the mercy of God alone is found. And God simply teaches us in the scripture that salvation is in Christ is by his electing, his choosing. And that salvation is according to predestination, his determining afore. And by his divine providence, him bringing to pass what he purposed. And my text here is found in chapter 9, verses 21 through 23. But let's begin reading in verse 15. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. For He, God, saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, we must conclude, so then, it's not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Salvation is of God that has mercy on whom He will. Salvation is of God who shows compassion on whom He wills. Salvation cannot be of man's will. It cannot be of man's work. It's not of man's will. It's not of Him that run it, that do it. It can only be by the mercy of God in Christ. Verse 17, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, why? That I might show my power in him, in thee, speaking to Pharaoh, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, he hath mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and on and whom he will, he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? This is why folks have a problem with these great truths. They don't think that it's right they don't think that it's lawful for God to do what He will with His own. Their argument is, if God is sovereign, if none can resist His will, then how and why does He find fault? To do so is not fair. Does Paul here find a need to defend God? Does God find a need to defend Himself? Absolutely not. Look at verse 20. Nay, but... O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? And then God, through the Apostle Paul, gives us the reason why man does not have the right to argue about God's power and right to do what he wills. So let's, let's again go down to the potter's house. We start with a very important question here. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Does he? The entirety of God's Word says that he does. We just read that in Jeremiah 18. After all, what is clay? You know, the English dictionary defines clay as stiff, Sticky, fine grain earth, typically yellow, red, or bluish gray in color, often forming an impenetrable, closed and resistant layer in the soil. I, I, as I read that 
dictionary by Webster, I thought that's a very good definition of us by nature. Clay, we're stiff, we're unbendable, unchanging in our ways. We're sticky. Everything we touch, we leave our sinful mark upon. Or everything we touch, we endeavor to keep for ourselves, however you want to look at it. We are every color of clay. We're yellow, cowardly in unbelief. We're red. We're quick to wrath and anger. And we're bluish gray, dead in trespasses and sin. When clay is wet, given the water of life, it can be molded and formed and fashioned. But when dry, without Christ, the water of life, it, it, uh, it's hardened and it's good for nothing. Boy, isn't that a picture of us? Have not the potter power. That word power means rights. It denotes rights. Does God not have the right? Hath the potter not the right? The divine potter has the right over the clay. I heard Brother Mahan say one time that he has the crown rights. He purchased the crown, the power, the rights by his own righteous work. That is so true. Christ is Lord by death, by decree, design, privilege, and authority. And whatever He purposes, it comes to pass. Every purpose of the Lord is done in wisdom. Now, many men today have authority, but they do unwise things. God's authority is always consistent with wisdom. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? He's too powerful to fail. He's too wise to be wrong. He does all things well. He cannot do wrong. The Lord not only does with His own what He wills, the Lord does with His own what is best. And that's where we find great comfort and rest and peace of soul. He does that which is best serves His glory, that which is good for His people. Yes, the potter has the power over the clay. And again, verse 21, the divine and sovereign potter can of the same lump. I've said this before. That's a good definition of us. Lumps. Big lump. I've been called that a lot. But doesn't he have the, the divine potter? Doesn't he have the power, the right of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Now we'll talk more about that in a moment. But here in Romans chapter 9, we immediately see a twofold purpose of God. First, He purposes to show His power, His right as God. Secondly, He does so that His name might be declared throughout all the earth. That it might be glorified. That's what that's speaking of. Look up again to verse 17. We see these two things very clearly. This, this is why God raised Pharaoh up. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. There it is, right in front of us. Now, verse 22. What if, what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Long-suffering. You know, that's a word that we don't know much about. 
Israel, God's chosen people, they were in bondage in Egypt, in slavery to Egypt for over 400 years. God endured Egypt with great long-suffering. But in the end, God destroyed them. You know the story. And He did so to make His power known. God suffered long with them, but when it was all said and done, when He destroyed Egypt, He did so to glorify His own great name throughout the earth. When Israel finally got to Canaan, everyone there, Rahab, the Gibeonites, and all the other enemies of the Lord, it says their hearts did melt because of Israel's great God. Oh, His power had been declared throughout all the earth. They heard and they were afraid. Long-suffering. Patience in spite of trouble. God's long-suffering is tolerance, forbearance, fortitude, restraint, self-control against those who hate Him without a cause. The wheels of God may turn slowly, but they turn. Peter wrote, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now man's days on earth are short, and if he does not accomplish if God, but not God's, and, and if man doesn't accomplish his purposes in a very brief time, he never will. But that's not so with God. He always lives. If he's pleased to accomplish something in one day, he can do it. And if He chooses to defer the executing of His purpose for a thousand years, He still has the power to carry out His will and His purpose even then. The wicked will not escape their punishment if it's just because it's delayed. They may think they've gotten away with something, but they haven't. The righteous will not be denied their divine promises because a thousand years passed. God will fulfill His promise. He's faithful to promise. Yes, and Peter continued and he said, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any. And that's speaking of His chosen people. That's who Peter's writing to in that epistle. He's not writing to the whole world. He's writing to believers. And he said He's not willing that any of you believers should perish. Any of His elect people. But that all, every one of them, should come to repentance. And you know what? Whether it's one day or whether it's in a thousand years, all of them will. Every single one. And also will every transgression and disobedience along with those who committed them will receive a just recompense of reward. God, be not deceived, friends. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, he shall also reap. So Paul asks, if God is willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Verse 23, that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. And there we have the second thing. God making His glory to be known. How does He do so? 
by bestowing the riches of His grace on vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory. Now, this is so wonderful. God could have left me to myself. You too. He would have been no less holy, righteous, or just if He had done so. He would have been no less God had He done so. That's what all of us deserved. Anything short of eternal wrath, judgment, anything short of eternal condemnation is the result of God's long-suffering to vessels of mercy. I could and should have been a vessel of wrath. And if God had left me to myself, that's what I would have been. That's exactly what I deserved to be, a vessel of wrath. But I didn't get what I deserved. I got what I didn't deserve. Mercy. Therefore, I'm a vessel of mercy. <laughs> Glory to God, that's what a vessel of mercy is. Now let's make a few quick observations about these vessels of mercy. First, vessels of mercy are made out of the same lump as vessels of wrath. Look back to the hole from which you and I were dug. Look back at the mire clay from which we were drawn. There lies nothing in us that differs us from any other. Who maketh thee to differ? What do you have you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you glory in it? That's, that's exactly right. There's nothing in you and I that merited mercy. Believers are miracles of God's love and distinguishing grace. Nothing more. If God had left us to ourselves, if God had left us Christless, we would have been eternally damned. We're all from the loins of Adam. We all share the same mother as Cain the murderer. Demas, who forsook the Lord Jesus, and Judas, who betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, had the same first parents that you and I did. We're all from the same lump. Secondly, from our text, we see that these vessels of mercy are entirely in the potter's hands. Had the potter willed to leave the lump of clay alone and untouched by his gracious hand, it would have been a vessel of wrath. There's no power in the lump of clay itself that could have made itself fit for honor only dishonor. And every child of God agrees with this. Yes, sir. I see some of you shaking your head yes right now. That's true. Clay vessels apart from the divine potter fit themselves for destruction. Only grace can prepare a soul for glory. No vessel of clay would be saved apart from the distinguishing grace of the divine potter and His work upon the wheel. Yes. The salvation of every vessel of clay is in the hands of the potter, God Himself. We all lie in God's hand. If any be saved, it will be by mercy. It will be by grace. Pure grace. Pure mercy. Sovereign grace. Sovereign mercy. There is no other kind. And then thirdly, our text speaks of God's chosen ones being vessels. Have you ever thought about that? 
a vessel is nothing but a receiver. A vessel is not a fountain. A vessel is not a creator of water. A vessel can only hold what is poured into it. A vessel can't pour into itself. I've never set a pitcher or my glass under the faucet and said, okay, I'm waiting. No. I'd turn on the faucet. The, the, the divine potter's got to pour into it. Vessels. At one time, these vessels of mercy were full of themselves, but grace emptied them. God made them empty vessels, and then He filled them to the brim. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad He filled us to the brim, aren't you? He filled us with mercy. And we became vessels of mercy. Isn't that good news? The amazing thing is that God had to give them the power to receive the mercy. We can't take credit for receiving what God gave to us. God had to make us willing in the day of His power to receive the mercy that He freely bestows upon us. That's just how dead we are by nature. He did so in the day of His power. The only... We can only work out what God's worked in. We're only receivers. <laughs> only that which is poured into a vessel can be poured out of it. And we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross, Christ's cross we cling. Fourthly, this is why we're vessels of mercy. The sovereign potter made us so. He formed us and He fashioned us to be vessels of honor. Only He could. The only qualification to be a vessel of mercy is need. In order to be clothed, you have to be naked and in need of a covering. In order to be made completely clean, we must see that we are entirely filthy and in need of cleansing. Only Christ's perfect righteousness can clothe us. And only Christ's precious blood can cleanse us. And we're not vessels of merit. We're vessels of mercy. Sinful men and women in need of a perfect covering of righteousness. Where are you going to get it? By a work of righteousness you do? Our, our work's filthy rags. Our righteousness filthy rags. It won't suffice. It won't work. God requires perfection. It's got to be perfect to be accepted. Only Christ's righteousness is perfect. And only Christ's righteousness is accepted by God. That's why we're accepted in the Beloved. Filthy wretches. We're filthy wretches in need of the cleansing of the blood of Christ. So do you have a need of clothing? Do you have a need of righteousness? Do you have a need of washing or cleansing? If you answer with an overwhelming yes, then you're a vessel of mercy. <laughs> We've got to be filled with misery before we can be filled with mercy. We've looked at the vessel now, so let's just quickly for a few minutes... Consider the potter and his work. 
Now when the potter places the clay upon the wheel and begins to turn it in fashion, you've seen potters do that, and maybe not in person, but on movies and shows or whatever. He didn't leave that vessel uh, to become what it wins. Does he? No. He's got his hand upon it. He's forming it and he's fashioning it and he's making it what he desires to make it. The potter has a purpose in mind. He knows what kind of vessel he's about to make. And so does the divine potter. As a mass of clay, he takes the poor sinner and he puts them on the wheel. And as it revolves, he sees something that he desires to fashion and make. This is something that only appears to the great Creator's eyes. John wrote, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, and what we shall be will never appear until we see Christ as He is, and we shall be like Him. But the divine potter knows what we are to be because He foreknew His people and purposed and predestinated them to be spotless, perfect vessels of mercy without spot or blemish or any such thing. To be conformed perfectly to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not leave one sin of theirs unpardoned. Not a one. Every sin will be dealt with. Only the potter can complete these vessels. How do I know? Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. How do I know? Paul said in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For in Him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in Him which is the head of all principality and power. That's our potter we're talking about. The mark of the divine potter upon the vessel of mercy. That all popular merchandise today has what's called a trademark. The trademark is particular to the maker and the manufacturer of the product. You could have some confidence this morning that being a vessel of mercy by the Master's mark which is upon you. If you've been called, those of you that were foreknown, predestined and chosen, it was divine grace that called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You didn't call yourself out. You didn't just wake up one day and see the light without God shining the light of the glorious Gospel into your hearts and, and giving you eyes to see. There's no question that you were ordained to eternal life and that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world if you look to Christ and Him alone. The distinguishing mark of the divine potter upon His vessels of mercy is His effectual calling. It's certain that no mere man could put that mark upon you. And you cannot put it upon yourself. You can't call yourself. Only the Divine One can give dead ears hearing. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. And Zacchaeus came down. 
calling was effectual, wasn't it? And some are going to say, well, Zacchaeus had a will. So he let go and let God. That's what you're saying? He made a decision to come down. Well, I don't believe that. What about Lazarus? He's four days dead. He's stinking dead. So are we by nature. Does a dead man have a will? Lazarus, come forth. And the Scripture says, He that was dead. He's not dead anymore. He was dead. He came forth. He was dead. But Christ's effectual call gave him life. And that's the mark. That's the trademark upon a vessel of mercy. God's calling. Effectual calling. He was no longer dead. Lazarus wasn't, and neither are we, after the effectual call. Spiritually speaking, Zacchaeus was no less dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically. Both were calls most effectual. This is the believer's divine trademark. No sinner can be effectually called and then perish. The seal of God's calling in and on the vessel of mercy. That's what it is. There's never been a sinner called out of darkness by mistake. Never has a sinner repented that was not found to be a vessel of mercy. Because repentance is of the Lord. Our Lord said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise, no way, no fashion, cast him out. Safe and secure. Safe in the shepherd's fold. That's what we are. Called by grace. Saved by grace. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Mr. Spurgeon once said, the right man, woman is called at the right time and at the right place and they come to Christ to find out then that it was purposed by God from the foundation of the world. That's why we don't preach election and predestination. It's Election is unto salvation. The sinner can take no credit They were called to be vessels of mercy before they ever did any good or evil that the purpose of God, according to election, God's determining and God's sculpting, might stand. Prove it to be so. It's not of works, but of Him that what? Calleth. And His calling is always effectual. Oh, if you're here this morning and you love Christ and you're trusting in Christ and you can't live without Christ, it's because God called you by His grace and He made you a vessel of mercy who forms the clay upon the potter's wheel. This is the mark found upon vessels of mercy.